Hey everybody, you're listening to the Clearer Thinking Podcast from Grace Valley Church in Dundas. I'm your host, Paul Vandenbrink, the lead pastor of Grace Valley Church. Thanks for listening. What the hell? Wait, did you just say that? Yes, I did. Because this week on the Clearer Thinking Podcast, we're going to listen to one of Pastor Paul's classic sermons on everyone's favorite topic, H-E double hockey sticks. In all seriousness, though, hell is something we do need to wrestle with. Hell is an eternal, permanent separation from our Father and Creator. As Pastor Paul spoke about this past Sunday, Jesus willingly took the punishment we deserve and experienced hell so we don't have to. As we observe and reflect over this time of Lent, let's turn our eyes to our Savior who claims victory over death and saved us from hell, bringing us into His heavenly home forever. Uh, Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. It's also in the bulletin. Starting at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was tormented and looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered then, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If you do not listen to Moses and the prophets, or if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is God's word. Thank you very much, Matt. Um, What a passage, hey? Uh, Yeah, what a passage. Um, If you look right here on this cool little banner, you'll see that... uh, You'll see clear thinking, deep feeling, humbly serving. Uh, Here at Grace Valley Church, one of our goals is to produce followers of Jesus Christ who are clear thinking, deep feeling, humbly serving. What these messages uh, over the last little while have been about is, is clear thinking, trying to explain some parts of the Bible that are very difficult to understand trying to understand some teachings of the Bible that are very difficult to accept and receive, 
this morning we're dealing with another one of those problems. It's the problem of hell. And you know, if we're going to if we're going to really try to be clear thinking, deep feeling, humbly serving people, if we're going to try to really be honest about the Christian faith, we have got to be willing to tackle even the most difficult, even the most unsavory, even the most distasteful of the Bible's teachings. And I think we've pretty much hit the big one this morning. In terms of things the Bible teaches, this one's, this one's about as bad as it gets. The idea that there exists an, a place of eternal conscious torment is not just hard for non-Christians to swallow, it's hard for Christians as well. They would say, and understandably so, they would say, how in the world can there be a God out there who claims to be all loving, who came, claims to be all gracious and all forgiving, and yet he would actually consign people to never-ending suffering. That's repulsive. That's, that makes God sound like he is vindictive and, and just plain savage. And you know, I, I get it. I get that. And I would suspect that the vast majority of Christians get that too. Uh, most of our understanding of what hell looks like comes from paintings, right? Medieval paintings. You've probably seen them, right? There's this vast pit, this huge pit with, uh, you know, a lake of fire. Maybe there's some, I don't know how this works, but, you know, there's lava, but then there's also um, rock that's not lava, and the people are sitting on that, and they're in agony, and they're looking up, and they're crying out. Maybe they're even climbing up the sides of the pit, and there's either demons with pitchforks or angels there, you know, kicking them in the face and knocking them back into the pit of hell. That's sort of the impression that we get about hell. That's, that's the, the idea that we have of hell in our heads. Is that really what it's like? All these people in there going, let me out, please, no. And, and, and God and, and the angels looking down and saying, no, you've had your chance. That kind of thing. The answer, of course, is no. But that might surprise you because the most, this has got to be one of the most misunderstood teachings of the entire Bible. This doctrine of hell. And what we're going to try to do this morning is we're going to try to understand it. The way Christians have begun to react to this misunderstanding of the, of the doctrine of hell is actually to say, well, you know, maybe hell doesn't last forever. Maybe hell doesn't really exist. Maybe people who go to hell, they only go there for a while. It's kind of like uh, a place where they, they get punished for their sins for a while, maybe even a really long while, but then eventually God lets them out, that kind of thing. But traditional Christianity, historic Christianity, what I would call biblical Christianity, that is Christianity that says we have to take the Bible seriously and we have to believe what the Bible says and we have to teach what the Bible says, says no, Scripture's pretty clear, hell does exist as a place of eternal conscious torment. And if you get rid of that doctrine, if you get rid of that place called hell, a place of eternal conscious torment, you actually gut Christianity of some of its most profoundly comforting teachings as well. In other words, if you get rid of the doctrine of hell, the doctrines of Christianity kind of collapse. It's, it's all one piece. 
It's like that piece in Jenga, you know, when you pull that piece in Jenga and the whole, the whole tower falls down. You pull out the doctrine of hell, the whole tower of Christianity falls down. Here's actually a better illustration, okay? It's like an ecosystem. You know, you go to a marsh where there's a pond and all that kind of stuff, and you see all these beautiful birds around, and you think, man, this place is so gorgeous. I love all these beautiful birds, and I love all these flowers and stuff. And then you go, oh, but man, do I hate the bugs. Like, there's mosquitoes and black flies. They're everywhere. And if you think to yourself, oh, it would be great to just wipe out all the bugs, get rid of the ugly stuff, what you end up doing is, is you end up killing the, the birds, too, because they eat the bugs. That's how they survive. You've got to have the ugly stuff to have the pretty stuff. If you want a God who truly is a God of glory and justice and majesty and love and grace and mercy, you've got to have a God of judgment. And so we need the doctrine of hell. If you lose the doctrine of hell, you lose the wonder of the gospel that says, Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. Now, as we say every week, especially during this series, because uh, we want to make sure people know that they have an opportunity to interact with the teaching, if you have questions that you want to ask, you can do that after the message. You can text me. My phone number's in the bulletin. You can text me. i got my phone here. I'll try to answer your questions, or you can raise your hand and ask it too if you want. And there's an outline on the back of the bulletin that you can follow along uh, so you know where we are in the message. Here, here's what we're going to talk about from this passage this morning. We're going to talk about the importance of hell. Why is the doctrine of hell? Why is it so important? And there's four basic reasons. There's more, but there's four basic reasons this morning that we're going to talk about it, uh, the importance of hell. And the first one is this. Jesus talked about hell a lot. Now, if you remember last week, we were arguing that Jesus said, believed he was the Son of God, that he was God in the flesh. He was like no other person that has ever lived because he was 100% God and 100% human, which means that he doesn't just have a human perspective on religious issues and spiritual questions. He actually has a divine perspective on religious issues and spiritual questions. And that means that when he says something about something, we ought to listen up. It's not like talking to Confucius and saying, well, Confucius, that's a very good point. I will take it under advisement. You're talking to God who says, I speak truth. I know this to be true. And Jesus talks a lot about hell. In fact, Jesus talks more about hell than any other biblical, actually, than all the biblical, other biblical characters combined. Nobody talked about hell more than Jesus did. He talks about it here, of course, as this, in this, this very interesting parable that we're going to get into more deeply, but it's not the only place. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus describes hell as the place where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes hell as a place of outer darkness, absolute isolation. Think of total blackness, total silence, total separation from God. It is a place of absolute misery and torment. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is talking to his disciples, okay? And he's talking about how his message uh, that 
that He has come to bring, that kingdom of God is at hand and He's calling people to repent and believe the good news of the gospel, He tells His disciples that very message, people are going to hate it and they're going to hate you for it and they may even try to kill you because you preach it and proclaim it. But, He says, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Be afraid of the one who can kill the body and soul in hell. Think about this. He's talking to the guys that he knows are going to take his message to different parts of the world, and when they take this message to different parts of the world, they are going to experience some pretty wicked suffering, some of them. Some of them are going to be impaled on stakes. Some of them are going to be hung up on crosses and crucified. Some of them are going to be covered in tar and lit with a match and made into human torches. And Jesus says, that's a flea bite compared to hell. You know, people, people like to think of Jesus as just this purely non-judgmental, gentle, mild, kind of long-haired surfer dude who thinks that all thing, it's all good, it's all cool, love, baby, right? But Jesus believed in hell and said we should take it seriously. That's the first reason that it's important, for the very reason that Jesus Christ thought it was oh so important. Number two, hell is important because it shows us the deadliness of sin. It shows us the deadliness of sin. We're going to look at this parable together. It is absolutely packed. When I was researching this, uh, I was astounded at the longer you read this parable, the more you read this parable, the more stuff that, that you can learn from this parable. And we can't obviously cover everything, so we're going to cover the most relevant parts to our subject today. Notice, first of all, in this parable, that there are two characters, two, char- two important characters uh, described. There's the rich man, and then there's Lazarus. Now, what's interesting is that all the scholars... And commentators point out that in this story, one of these men is named Lazarus, and the other one is not named rich man. And that's very, very unique. In all the other stories that Jesus tells and parables he gives, when he gives uh, comparisons, he never names anybody. But this time, he names someone Lazarus, and it helps to know what Lazarus means to understand the significance of that. The name Lazarus means, God is my help. Now here's something important you need to understand about Scripture. In Scripture, naming is an extremely important thing. It's not like today where we pull out our baby book and we go, how, did this, how does this sound? Right? How, does the, how does these go together? Okay, I admit, I, we did that a bit. Right? Um, back then, naming was extremely important because naming identified you. It, it spoke about your character. It, talked, it, it gave you your identity. There's a reason that Jacob was named Jacob, for example, and then God renamed him Israel. Other sermon, can't tell you why right now, sorry. But there's a reason for that. And Lazarus is given this name, God is my help. And the rich man is not given a name. In other words, his identity is basically rich man. 
And Abraham, further down in the passage, what does he say? He says in verse 25, where are we here? Chapter 16, verse 25. Uh, rich man, or Abraham says this, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted where he is here, and you are in agony. Here's what Abraham is saying. He's saying, in your life, your identity was wrapped up in your riches. You were a rich man. That's why the beginning of the parable, it says very clearly that he, lived, he had purple robes, fine linen and purple robes. That means that he was extremely rich, because in order to have Anything purple back then, it cost a tremendous amount of money to dye things purple. So only the very, very rich had purple. And he was clothed in that purple, and he was clothed in these fine linens. These things wrapped him up. They identified him. So this man's identity was all wrapped up in his wealth and in his riches. These were his good things, okay? And you had them in your life, but you see, when you died, as they say, you can't take it with you. And those things were gone, you didn't have them anymore. And so now the rich man is without a name. In other words, the rich man has lost his identity. Understand something. He is in hell not because he is rich. Okay? He's in hell because he loved money more than anything else. He, he loved riches. He found his security in his riches. It was his good thing when he wondered, what makes me who I am? What makes me tick? What makes me matter? What makes me of any worth or importance? He turned and looked at his money. Okay? They were his good things. It's not that this rich man did tremendous evil. We think of hell as being a place for the wicked. And we identify the wicked as murderers, pedophiles, rapists, uh, tyrants. These are the people who ought to go to hell. This guy probably wasn't even an atheist. Almost nobody was an atheist in, in around Jesus' time. Nobody believed that there was no God. That was ridiculous. And so he was probably an upstanding member of the religious community. But he loved his money. I, I remember talking once with a, a woman who told me, you know, I spent the last 20 years of my life raising my children. And now they're all out of the house and they're all on their own, and I don't know who I am anymore. Because she admitted that raising her children was her good thing. It was her sunum bodum. Have you ever heard that? Sunum bodum? It's Latin. It basically means my good thing. It means my most important thing. And, and what sin and what, what Satan does is he dupes us, he, he deceives us, he tricks us into believing that these good things are so good that we should give them our entire selves. They become gods, you see. And that's the ultimate rebellion. When we make something other than God himself the most important thing in our lives. See, Scripture says that God is the only good thing that lasts forever. And if you don't want him, you will eventually get what you ask for. What do I mean by that? This is the second point. We're still under, where are we here? We're still under number two, okay? We're still under number two. 
So A, under number two, is these characters and describing what, what, what evil looks like, what sin looks like, but what does hell look like? Hell, according to the Bible, is a place of disintegration. You know how Jesus, in this story, he uses this image of fire, right? You know, the fires of hell, and uh, he uses it in other places as well. And we have pictures of hell as being that kind of place. Is that what hell is? Is hell a place of, like, never-ending fire? Is that... Is that what's going on? And the answer to that is no, it's not. It's a metaphor that Jesus uses to describe hell. He, he, the Bible also uses this metaphor of outer darkness, being cast out into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth as the place of hell. It also describes in Revelation as a place of chains where people are chained up. Is that what it is? No, it's not any of that. And maybe you're saying, Phew, I'm glad to hear that. No, 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 don't be glad because these metaphors mean that the reality is probably way, 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 way worse. The Bible describes heaven in very positive terms, right? It's a crown, it's a feast, it's never-ending day, like it's, it's ongoing summer. And those are all metaphors that are meant to tell you that heaven is so great, we can't really describe it. It's infinitely better. And so here, Jesus uses fire and he uses uh, darkness and he uses separation to show us that it's actually much, much worse. But there's something in those metaphors that are important. What does fire do? Fire disintegrates things, right? You put a log in the fire and it, and it burns up, and, and I don't know, I'm, I mean, I'm no scientist, right? But there's some sort of chemical reactions and molecules are changing and shifting and turning into different stuff until, at the end of the day, you no longer have a log, you just have this ash, right? Fire breaks it down. And that is precisely what sin does, and it does it in an unrestrained way in hell. Nobody has put this better than a guy named C.S. Lewis. Listen to how he puts it. It's kind of terrifying, okay? So listen carefully and be terrified. Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever, and that is either true or it's not. Okay? Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I am going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for what it would be. Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying, and this is the, the deep, profound insight in the Bible. The seeds of hell lie already in our hearts. The seeds of hell are already resting in our hearts. So maybe if you struggle with anger or you struggle with bitterness or you struggle with unforgiveness and you say, you know, this is a problem in me. I see this problem in me. 
and you don't actually do anything about it, you know, it will get worse over time. And now you're only 18 and you're struggling with, uh, okay, let's, let's, let's use this. Uh, you're 18 years old, you're struggling with uh, sexual immorality and pornography and lust, and you know it's a bad thing, but you don't do much about it, and you just kind of let it go. Now, now, how bad could it be by the time you're 70 or 80 years old? This is what C.S. Lewis is saying. It could be pretty, pretty bad, right? Pretty awful. Now, what if it was let go for a million years? What if you lived for a million years and you were caught up in this sinful tendency for a million years? How bad would it be then? You've, you've seen this, right? You've, I know you've seen this. How many people here have watched Downton Abbey? Okay, many of you. That's good. Those of you who haven't, so my wife and I, we are like behind on everything. So we're watching Downton Abbey right now. And there's a character in it named Thomas. Now, Downton Abbey is about the, this earl and his family. They live upstairs and their servants who live downstairs. And it's about the relationship between these people. And this is around the 1900s, 1920, 1930s, 20s, 20s and 30s or so. It's a very fascinating show. And there's this character named Thomas. Thomas is a, is a footman. He is a, he is a servant who wants to move up in the ranks. But he has got this mean streak. He is a devious deceitful, oh, guy, like, oh, when you're watching this show, you just want to yell at Thomas all the time. And, but even when he tries to do good things, he cannot help but do it in a devious way. And every time that something works out for him, it works out for him despite the fact that he is so devious and dastardly. And you'd think, well, now he's learned his lesson. And every time he has not learned his lesson. And he does it again. And he gets himself deeper into the muck. And then somebody, he gets saved by happenstance again. And you think, okay, Thomas, now you're going you're gonna to stop this lying and cheating. And he does it again because you know why? The more he does it, the more he becomes it. When my wife were landlords for a very short period of time, thank the Lord it was a very short period of time, we, had, we lived upstairs, we had people downstairs. We had a, a young guy in his 20s who lived underneath us, and this guy was a habitual liar. He was not even 25 years old, and he just lied. Like he did, I don't even know if he knew how to tell the truth anymore. Because the seeds of lying had, had been given opportunity to grow, and like weeds in a garden, they had just taken over his entire nature, you see. And hell is when the restraints that hold that tendency in us back are taken away, and we are just free to indulge our sinful nature forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Now, why is that why that happens in hell? Well, because hell is not just this fire of disintegration that Jesus talks about here. It's also separation from God. In verse 26, he says this. Abraham says this after Lazarus or after the rich man wants Lazarus to come down to him. He says, Between us and you, a great chasm is fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He describes this great chasm. The, the, the King James Version calls it a great gulf. There is a great gulf, you see. Understand what, what Scripture says. Scripture says that in Jesus Christ... All things hold together. They cohere in Him. Okay? In other words, in God's presence, 
in his, before his face and his glory, the closer you are to his heart, his heart, God's heart as the creator and sustainer of the universe, that is the exclusive source of coherence for all of us and for life. And so the further you go from God, the further you distance yourself from God, seeking life on your own terms, saying, I will decide what is right and what is wrong. I will decide how I'm going to live. I'm going to do things my way. The further you go from Him, the more you get broken up. In other words, separation from God is that raging fire, you see. As long as you exist here on this earth, you can never, ever be fully separated from God. You're always on some level, in some way, in His presence. It is a kindness of His. It is a mercy. It is a grace. You wake up every morning and you think your heart goes boom, 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 just because of science. And your lungs fill with air and somehow they're able to take the oxygen in the air and transfer it into energy so that you can keep living and you breathe out carbon dioxide. You think that's all just naturally happening? That's just science at work doing its thing. And the Bible says that's the way God made it, but without God, that would never happen. Every breath you take is a gift of His. And then he says... To the degree that you are able to still love or to the degree that you're able to still experience joy or overcome bad habits inside you or, or, or care for another person or forgive, to that degree, you see, to that degree, the wickedness is being restrained by God because you're still in His presence. But you see, you spend your whole life trying to escape God and the Bible says, eventually, you will get it. And C.S. Lewis continues with this description of what, that ha- what happens then. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, he says. Always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it but there may come a day when you, can no, when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. The problem is, is that each of us wants to be our own master. And the scary thing is, is that at some point, Jesus might just say, fine, be your own master. And that's point number three. The point, uh, why is hell important? The importance of hell? Hell is entirely, entirely just when you understand it for what it really is. Notice how this rich man behaves in hell. In verse 24, he says, send Lazarus down here to quench my thirst. Okay, so he's bossing Lazarus around. He seems to think that this class distinction that he enjoyed while they were on earth, it continues, and he keeps bossing Lazarus around. Then in verse 27 and 28, he says, now go send Lazarus to my brothers and and tell them and warm them and that kind of thing. And again, he's trying to boss Lazarus around, but more importantly, 
he's actually implying that him being where he is is kind of an injustice. It's as though he's saying, look, if I had a little more information in my life, if, if I had known better, I wouldn't have made the choices I made and I wouldn't be here. Go warn my brothers and tell them that this place exists so that they don't suffer the same fate as me. He's basically saying, this isn't my fault. He's blame shifting. He's saying if they would even see someone rise from the dead, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do it. If you had done that for me, if, you, if I had seen someone rise from the dead, well, maybe then I wouldn't be here either. But listen to this. At no point in the story, do you notice? At no point in the story does the rich man ever try to get out of hell. He spends all his time trying to get Lazarus in and none of his time trying to get out of hell. He doesn't say to Abraham, look, okay, I was a fool. I was wrong. I made a mistake. I didn't understand. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. And that is precisely what people think. They think that when people are in hell, this is because of those medieval pictures again, right? The people are in hell and they're climbing up the sides and they're trying to get out and they're saying, let me out of here, please, God, let me out of here. And God is like, no. And he's stomping on their fingers and they're falling back into the pit of hell. That is not how the Bible describes it at all. The Bible says that hell is actually the greatest monument to human freedom. I wonder if I put it on here. Uh, Soon. We'll get there soon. Again, this is Lewis. I, I learned so much from him about this. He says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? Are you asking him to wipe out past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start? He has done so at Calvary. Are you asking him to forgive them? But they refuse to be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, I am afraid that is what he does. And now we get the quote that's on the front of your bulletin. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. There is no evidence anywhere in Scripture that, that there is repentance in hell. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that when a person is in hell, they, they come to their senses and they say, oh, what a fool I've been. Oh, God, forgive me. Please take me into heaven. Nowhere. People who are in hell want to be in hell. And I know you find that hard to believe. But if you, if you think about hell as basically a testimony to your own autonomy, your own self-rule, if that's basically what it is, when you are in hell and the restraints are taken off and you can finally pursue with all gusto what you really, really want, if what you want is self-rule, at what point would you say to yourself, oh, wait a minute, no, I want God rule. Oh God, I figured it out, I really want your rule. It doesn't make sense, does it? Hell is the most just punishment out there. And parents, if you're a parent, I know I use parenting a lot, what can I say? You know, deep down in your soul, you know that that's kind of how it works. That, that it's true. That the best way to punish your kids sometimes is just to give them what they want. You've got this toddler, 
they're trying to climb up onto the coffee table, right? And you're like, no, 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 don't. That's dangerous. Listen to me. Trust me. You'll hurt yourself. And they like try to climb up. And you grab them and you pull them down over and over and over again. And finally, you know, you have had enough. You are tired. It's been weeks of this. And they're still trying to climb up on the coffee table. And finally, they're about to climb up and they look at you and you don't do anything. And up they try to climb, and all of a sudden they tip, bonk, and they fall on the floor, and they're scared, and maybe they're hurt a little bit, and they go, and you go, see, I told you. Oscar, Oscar Wilde, I'm already getting a question. Oscar Wilde said, when the gods want to punish us, they answer our prayers. Hell is entirely just. One more thing. Hell is important because it displays the extent of God's love. You will hear very often people say, I cannot believe in a loving God who would send people to hell. My God is a God of love. He would never send people to hell. And unfortunately, they're wrong. You see, the rich man, he says to Abraham, he says, send Lazarus to my brother's house. This is verse 20. For I have five brothers, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And basically he's arguing that if they see Lazarus alive, they will change their mind. They will say, oh, we're so sorry, we had no idea. And they won't get stuck with the same kind of light, uh, future that he's been stuck. But Abraham says something very interesting. In verse 31 he said, if someone from the dead goes to them, or sorry, he says, oh, yeah, okay, let me just get, all right. Verse 27 and following. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Okay. Abraham responds, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to him. No, Father Abraham, he says, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit like a cruel response? It does, doesn't it, right? Abraham says, basically, it won't work. Even if someone rises from the dead, it won't work. Why? Well, here's why. It may work to change their behavior, right? They see someone from the dead come back and they go, ah, I'm terrified, I don't want to go to hell, I don't want the punishment too, so I will change my behavior and I will do the right thing. But that doesn't get rid of the fire. The fire is rooted in this self-rule, in this self-determination, in this, this, this I will be damned if I will, if I will let anything else control my life and my destiny. And if someone says, well, out of fear, I am going to obey God in order to get out of hell, what are they doing? They're controlling their destiny. They're saying, I still rule myself. They're still living in, in that self-centered, autonomous mode that causes all the problems in the first place. In fact, it's just getting worse. Now they're being good for their own designs, for their own purposes, for their own reasons. You see? They say, when, when, Moses, when Abraham says, he has Moses and the prophets, or they have Moses and the prophets in verse 29. What's he saying? He's saying that even Jesus' resurrection is not enough. Even Jesus' naked resurrection, rising from the dead, is not enough. 
what has to happen is, is you have to understand that resurrection in light of Moses and the prophets. In other words, you have to understand that resurrection in light of the death of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus die? There's all kinds of places in the Old Testament that describe why Jesus came to die, but one of the most beautiful is in Isaiah chapter 53. The prophet Isaiah says this, He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. What's Isaiah saying? Basically, he's saying that Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, he suffered hell on the cross. Remember, hell is absolute separation from God. Jesus was cast out of the presence of his Father. When he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the door to heaven was finally shut to him for the first time ever. He heard no response. He was in utter agony and utter, utter turmoil, alone, abandoned. And he was experiencing the fire. He was experiencing the fire. When he cried out, it was, it was disintegration. One... one Scholar said that on the cross it was as if Jesus veritably took his own body and soul and tore them asunder. He was ripped apart. Psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, even physically. He faced the fire. Here's the point. The only thing that really changes our hearts, that, that stops the fire burning in us, is when we go from fear to love. When we go to giving ourselves to Jesus out of love rather than trying to obey him to get what we want or get what we need or do the right thing in order to achieve our goals. No, when you see Jesus living for you and dying for you, you just abandon yourself and follow him out of love. You're not thinking about avoiding hell. You're not thinking about getting what you want. You're just thinking about how wonderful he is that he would take that for you. Without the doctrine of hell, you will never know the depths of God's love for you. You'll never know just how far he was willing to go to rescue you. You'll never know the, the, the depth of pain and suffering he was willing to experience in order to have you as his child. Why would we sing? Did we sing? I know we sang it. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. We sing that because of the cross. Because on that cross, Jesus faced hell for you and me. He literally went through hell to make us children of our Heavenly Father. That's why we need hell. You can't understand God's love if you don't understand what His love rescued you from and what it cost Him to do it. Let's pray. Father, help us to live out of love. Help us to accept your truth, what it says in your word. Help us to understand that your grace, your grace is all that we need in this life and in the next. But give us the ability to receive it so that the hell that wants to take over us will be stopped in its tracks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.